I refer frequently back to the same gif of like a woman in, I believe it was Real Housewives of Atlanta saying like, these bitches think they're Beyonce because they walked in one local ass fashion show. And like, I consider like media Twitter a local ass fashion show. What up, Kyle? Hello, Jeff. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm just reading the notes, man. I know. I can tell. It sounds like you're a third grader uh, working his way through a paragraph that he's very afraid of making a mistake during. Uh, so welcome to Writers Who Don't Write. I'm Jeff. And I'm Kyle. And this week on the show, we have some news for you. Do we? Oh, not really. I'm, I'm just trying to you know get everybody excited. You're trying to spice uh, it up? Well, now they're probably yeah. disappointed. Well, we do. I mean, how I dare will... you? Uh, I will say we do have a little bit of news. Like, I don't know how exciting it is for anybody except me, but uh, I published an essay today in Paste Magazine, which is kind of taking you a little bit behind the scenes of, of how we make this show. You're also kind of fucking up the name of the show, man. We, The purpose is that we don't write. The point is that we are writers who don't. I guess we're going to have to change the name. You keep saying that. I, I do keep I saying love, that. I love this name. You know, it's going to be like a reminder of, of what we were at one point. It's a reminder of what we were, but also to everyone we introduce ourselves to, it's a reminder of how poorly thought out the name was, at least in terms of the way that other people see it. Because it's true, it does not explain what we do, even though I am partial to it because I created it. And I'll just throw that out there one more time. Well, yeah, but it doesn't. The, the the name of the show doesn't have to, you know, like be the name of what this will always be. You know, for example, Startup, the podcast. Like, I would argue that Gimlet is no longer a startup. I think you'd be wrong with that argument, though. I mean, you <laughs> you could you, you could argue you could argue that my argument is wrong. But uh, anyway, who do we have in the show this week? This week we've got Alana Massey, and why don't you tell us a little bit about what she's written so far? Alana has written everything about everything. I, I'm serious. I tried to count all of the. She has nine different topics that she she puts on her website. She has so many uh, different stories that she's written that she actually has to separate them by topic on her own website. But you know, it's mostly like identity, culture, you know, uh, like vice, virtue, sex, all kinds of cool things. And uh, you know, she she can literally go on about anything. She is so smart. But she also talks to us about. Uh, you know what it's like to write with a particular audience in mind. One Direction, who who she fucking loves, and she has a new book out this week. Uh, actually, yesterday, depending on when you're listening to this, called "All the Lives I Want," which is a collection of essays reimagining the lives and legacies of famous women. And you can pick it up wherever books are sold. Uh, one of the more interesting parts of the interview for me was when she gets into talking about how she writes and how she decides what to write next based on the business of writing. I thought that was a really interesting topic that you don't hear a lot of writers talk about. So that was fun to dig into the weeds there. She she actually talks about this in the interview a little bit, so I'll let her take the, the lion's share of it. But you know, there are two sides to that argument, uh, You know, writing about what you want, writing about what you think your readers want. And both are incredibly important when it comes to your decision making, and, and you know, they're not mutually exclusive. But before we get to the interview, I want to take a minute to tell you about our sponsor, My Lit Box. Uh, long-term listeners of the show may have noticed that last week we did our first bonus episode. Uh, it was just kind of thrown in there, but we interviewed Sonora Williams, who's the CEO of My Lit Box, which will deliver a book written by an author of color to your mailbox once a month. Uh, listeners of this show can get a discount on my lip box using code WWDW upon checkout. Uh, and it's pretty cool. Check out the interview. And now let's get to the show. Welcome to the show, Alana. Thank you. Yeah. Glad to be here. Yeah. How's everything going? Things are going pretty well. It's like kind of the end of the world outside and a little <laughs> bit in like, you know, our central location of government too. But like I'm keeping a, keeping spirits up. I mean, you have quite a bit to be excited about. I, I think mean, with... one would think, but you know, what's all Ooh. that if the end of the world is coming? True. Well, yeah, it must <laughs> be quite a contrast uh, between the things happening in our government right now and the personal success you're experiencing. It is, and it's sort of like you, you 
sort of say to yourself, like, well, you know, the show must go on, both in the sense of, like, uh, culture has to, like, keep producing itself, but also you have to just sort of, like, live your life and, like, make your breakfast and make your bed and feed your cat every day, even as those things sort of crumble apart, and realizing that, like, those things are as valuable as, you know, it's, like, the same thing as, like, going to work, because it feels like, oh, I don't want to, like, who cares about promoting a book when this is all happening? But then it's like, oh, but promoting a book is just my day job. Like, that's actually what I do for a living. It's not an attempt to thwart or, mis you know, redirect conversations. It's just like, this is still part of my job. Like, I can live in the world and be present in the world. But, like, I can't just, you know, surrender all my worldly possessions and desires and protestful times like sometimes I'm gonna have to tweet about my book I'm sorry like I know the revolution is supposed to happen and I'm very much you know stoked for being present for resistance elements but I'm also like eh, but sorry guys I have to like tweet this nice nice thing that somebody said about my book and uh it's just my job because we forget that like being like a personality that's not the job the job is to be a product as well and sell a product um both in the form of whether it's selling it to editors who are then you know repackaging it and selling it through advertisements and all of those through ways and then the more direct like selling the product of a book to consumers and like switching over is a difference but uh largely well, I mean it's the same thing it's funny that you say that because I so I spent five years working in in publicity at like an independent firm for books, and uh, one of the things that like I didn't necessarily dislike, but I didn't love the fact that sometimes we would take these like news stories of the day and we would just like wrap it around the the pitch for the book, and you know we'd go for these like newsy topics, and sometimes it felt just kind of dirty. Are, is there? Uh, I I mean, not to put you on the spot or anything, but like, have you ever felt that way before? Uh, dirty about promoting stuff around a topic like yeah and topic. i i don't think that you have i mean not I that have. I've seen, no but. i mean <laughs> i think that it's really funny to to watch self-promotion that attempts not to be dirty because like continually talking about how dirty it is just makes it look even dirtier and so sometimes like you know a story will come up like a news story that you're like, you know, pe sometimes people are desperately trying to like hook their own work to the news. Mm -hmm. And that's just like kind of embarrassing. But then sometimes it's like very evident. And I've seen people who like I, you know, whose work I respect and who like, whose, you know, stories I think are directly related, sort of like do this sort of like seven tweet preliminary apology about the topic at hand. And then tweet their thing. I'm just like, just, just like, use the opportunity to like give the people that follow you like some context. Like, if the if the piece is actually linked and relevant, like, and then like, appreciate it's it, right? not embarrassing because yeah. I mean, it, because it is actually helpful. But people who are like, you know, I just want to be helpful, and it feels like writing is so, you know, not helpful at this time, and it feels so frivolous, and it feels like this <laughs> and that, and you know, like I just want to do this, but like if it would help anyone to read this, then like please do, but please don't feel obligated. I'm just like, just like, I'm making, like this reminds me of this thing I wrote about you know, capitalist oligarchies, you know. Boom, link, next yeah. tweet, get on with your life. If people want to read it, they can. Um, but I think this sort of like overly, if this is dirty, I want to apologize for it thing makes it so much dirtier because like then you know it is more about the self-interested element and not the like service element because there have been times when like I really do think that like work I have done could be helpful to people where mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, like some context for this would be here um i i had a uh one, one of our past guests had a book that came out today and uh so i i you know sent out her old episode and like a piece that i had written about it because i mean i just absolutely loved the book i thought it was you know one of the best things i read last year um uh, and just as a plug now it's called this is how it always is it's by Lori frankel uh <laughs> But um, that, like, I felt good about because, like, I was promoting something I truly loved. 
But, yeah. you know, when other guests on the show, like, get a promotion at work or, like, change jobs or something, like, I always want to, like, tweet something out and be like, hey, you know, listen to, you know, so-and-so when they were still at their old job. But, like, I don't because I, I just feel, like, weird about it. Um, well, if it's the, if their job promotion is the, the news element, I thought you meant sort of, like, well, I mean, like I'm not necessarily, you know, deletes, like, parks tweet you know like national park tweets let's read cheryl stray's wild <laughs> you know, like, i think that, that is like a little bit grosser because it's like it's a more tenuous link to like nature is awesome so are books yeah. <laughs> but like if it's just like the, if the news itself is the author that isn't like diminishing the what you're doing because like what I mean, you I, do is make a podcast about writers that's true. Yeah, I, we're I already in that about that. Yeah. Um, I was yeah. just I was just thinking like typically it's like, you know, I don't want it, the writer especially, but like mo more so like the listeners to think that we're trying to benefit off of the what's happening to all of these other folks. But in any but, case, right, but you you know, but you are. Yeah, I know. Though. I know. And that's the that's the part that like, you know, I'm not necessarily comfortable with um even though like I love the fact that people listen to us because they want to find out more about these writers. Mm. Um that said, you are a writer. I'm a writer. I write things. What's the first story you were really proud of writing? What's uh, the first time you look back and can remember thinking distinctly, I'm a pro? Oh, distinctly thinking I'm a pro. If I, or I could just be proud of it. Um, I think that, I mean, I was, I, I, I think I was, proud of stories and I still feel this way um I get proud of stories retroactively when they get approval and so like a childhood story was a very um I read like sufficient amounts of like Oregon Trail and Little House on the Prairie and had like a story in which a girl like kind of dies on a very Oregon Trail like um, very Donner Party-esque pioneer trip and dr she drowns and like there's this very elaborate scene where like her skin is as like blue as her calico dress and like I remember <laughs> distinctly being like I am ripping like copy from my American Girl doll outfit of like Kirsten is wearing a traditional calico dress of pioneer girls and I was like all right calico we got it this is calico What's that? Blue, blue skin, like when you die from drowning, <laughs> like we're putting them together. And, but it became this like scene where like my classmates were crying and it was like, you know, like it wasn't like a main character in this like ongoing saga that we were supposed to be writing in our like creative writing for like gifted and talented education kids. But like it was like this younger sister who was always really helpful and quiet and she's like dry, drowns in a river. Um and it's part of like an ongoing story, but I remember my my teacher, Mrs. Goldfein, and she was just like, Alana, you have to keep writing. You have to keep writing. And I was like, Yeah, I have to keep writing. Death scenes for little girls. Like Um, and I was, you know, eleven at the time, and so it wasn't that bad that I like killed off the seven year old. But I remember like the I remember being proud of having like reimagined something that I had read into something that like was original and that I thought that I didn't know like I honestly didn't know if what the like rules were about like inspiration at the time I was like I wonder if people are gonna know that this is based on like Kirsten's outfit from the American Girl dolls and like <laughs> it's not really Swedish but like we're gonna make her I don't know Russian or German you, you uh, know you had, you had the one girl in the back of the room that's just like why didn't I think of that what <laughs> this this like weird combination um, <laughs> but I remember being proud of that and like and, and I think that has like perhaps misinformed or like over informed how I'm like oh I can write fiction I've been writing fiction since the 90s I've returned to fiction recently and I've been like oh like I'm I'm good at this but like it's very much informed by like that very early like affirmation from my sixth grade teacher so we'll see how that goes if that's what comes next 
So is this, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know about this new book deal, but is this new book deal that you mentioned earlier for fiction or is it for nonfiction? No, the second book is, is also nonfiction. Um, it's not essays. Okay. It's like a more narrative um, sort of philosophical, political, social commentary nonfiction. Um, but it's almost, I mean, it's it's almost done. And so if I go into like when I go into whatever happens next, if like, if books are the next thing again, there is fiction that I've been working on that's not done that I'm thinking about, but um, is one of those things where I'm like, does anyone want this from me? And I have to write it to know because fiction proposals and nonfiction proposals work very differently. Um, but we'll see. Yeah. Could, could be super interesting. It's uh we were talking about Dana Schwartz a little bit before this, but she uh, is writing a Y or coming out with in April, I think a YA novel um, May. in May. Okay. And it, like most of her work prior to this, at least, you know, published and in the professional setting, it's been nonfiction. So I think it'll be really cool to see that. I always love it when you have these, I mean, I, I don't know if it's considered crossover or not, but I love that. Well, I love so, it when it surprises people like yeah. either, either direction. How much does that guide what your decision to do next is now that you're finishing up the nonfiction book that you've been working on for a while now? Like how much of your your decision to try and put yourself out there in a new venture is based on that sort of sentiment? I mean, this is like a really boring answer, but like I am very much guided by what my agent thinks is like best for my writing career which people don't want to hear because they want to hear like oh like I live in the woods and I am moved by the spirit to like write certain things and sometimes I'm just like hey Adrian what's my next move because I want to do this and I want to do this and I want to do this and I'll give her like you know because like I at any one time like I do have an abundance of things that I want to write about some more than others and some in ways that I have to sort of coax down into something more that is a book. And then people don't like to hear the sort of nitty gritty of that, but sometimes it's like, she'll be like, okay, well, like, I don't think that this would be great as a second book. I think this is a third book. And like that, that, that is like a calculation that someone has to make as a writer. People don't like to hear about because they want to know like, this first book is like the book I've been waiting to write all my life. And they want to know the second book is like, I was inspired by the first book. And like, I wanted to write this. And really like, it's a much more, um, it's a much, much more trust building industry than that, where you have to say like my original, I mean, like, my original version of all the lives I want, like, I'm very happy with the version I came out with, but like my first instinct was much more of an aggressive tone in it. It was a much more angry book than it came out being. And sort of having that conversation about, about like, what is the book that you want to be your first book? Because it has a lot more permanence than an article or, you know, something that isn't, like, printed and, like, goes to these various lists and, you know, that people buy with their own money. Having multiple projects that I care about right now that I'm thinking of, like are all sort of swirling in my head and like a third book deal would it's one of those things that's going to be determined by my first book sales and it's going to be determined by you know the happiness of like my publisher with my second book and like the sort of like talk that goes on around like oh yeah she turned in her second thing and like people are really thinking it's awful or like people are think, you know, so excited about it, you know, because you don't know those things until they happen. And so that's like a, this is a very long version of like much of the, like the publishing market and the media market very much determines what I write next. Um, it doesn't determine what I write period where it's not going to be like Alana Matthew writes about sports suddenly, you know, like I'm not going to suddenly become a commentator on politics, but there are, there are going to be, you know, shifts and moves from the reception of the first book and mm -hmm. the sort of like internal reception of the second set of, so, you know. So you're going to, you're going to write a little bit more for your audience based off of how they take, you know, book one and two. Well, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you can get permission. Sometimes like a book will be such a hit that like, you can kind of do whatever you want next. People just want you because people have like 
through loving your book have like been like, you, were, you know, they become the book of Ruth and they're like, where you go, I will go. Your gods will be my gods. Your people will be my people. Um, and so you can kind of be like, well, I wrote this book about coconut oil. You know, like that's the first thing I saw on my desk where I'm like, ah, like it's about guitars. Like, um, and sometimes that can happen and you can do what you want, whatever you want. But sometimes I think, I think that we make a mistake in thinking that like responding to the market is inherently negative because I think like hearing what people are responding to and then saying like, okay, you really like, so if like, if like this book comes out as I want and people are like really into the essays about Britney Spears and the Virgin Suicides and Amber Rose and Joan Didion, I'm like, okay, all of those have, an element of like the body in them it means that they're reacting like what are what are like the elements that thread through this and I think that like you know those are those are ones that like I've reread and as much as I thought all of these books were about like fame and celebrity and notoriety I was like wow I'm talking a lot about the living inside of a body here um and what that means and what that signifies and it means that if people are like mentioning those over and over again that in a positive way that like I have like struck a chord here and like this is a strong suit and if there is a place for me to make that larger and more significant and like touch more people in a positive way then I don't feel like I'm just like responding to capitalism that I am mm -hmm. I feel like I am like taking in feedback from keep, the people keep, who have keep, entrusted me with their money and bought my book keep in mind that Kyle and I are, are at least I am a huge proponent of of writing poor capitalism well, um, that's the thing i mean it's just like sometimes frowned upon oh for sure i do mean anything but like follow your heart i'm like but like my heart's kind of rotten to its core yeah like, my, my heart wants to get paid yeah like my heart will go on with or without these things like i don't it's not gonna like stop beating because i wrote a book that was like not the original idea because i think that this idea of the writer's instinct is always right is also misguided um sort of like hyper you know spiritualization of like the writerly mind when I'm just like yeah we're just like people who who like have a certain agility with language that is that is morally and ethically neutral and so assigning us better discernment than other people outside of that realm I think is a mistake I'm also it's I mean you started it off with saying that it was boring but I think this is one of the more fascinating parts about writing as a business because so few people discuss it in such business like terms and it's it's rare to hear someone tr talk about it and sort of take away the romanticism of oh it is this moral and ethical pursuit and say hey this is something I do for a living to get paid the 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 capitalistic point is interesting so hearing you talk about the business aspect of it in terms of how you decide what to write next I think they're there's a lot to be discussed there, especially with you as someone who is such a prolific writer. Mm -hmm. um, is there any sort of gauge to the the topics that are floating around for you to choose from? Mm -hmm. Like right now is a time where I currently have two stories that don't have a home that I think are like some of the best things I've ever written. And one of them is about One Direction, the band, the boy band. <laughs> and it's been rejected by nine different editors. Wow. And I'm like, I'm at the point where, where I really think it's one of the best things I've ever written. And I'm like, I can't wait for this book to come out because like, then I won't need these fucking idiot editors who can't tell the difference between <laughs> One Direction think piece and like the next One Direction think piece. Can and you I'm just can, like, fucking men like they don't understand what this means to me or what it means to like so many women who care about the band. So can uh, you explain that though? Because I've like I am a man who doesn't understand One Direction, and I mean I don't have like seven and a half hours, but like I, <laughs> I don't know if you, you probably did see this, but like my only tattoo is a One Direction tattoo. I mean, this is the thing. This is the reason the world needs this thirty-two hundred word essay that I wrote, like between. 11 p.m. and like 6 a.m. in one night, I was driving home from Brooklyn to Saugerties and literally crying at my own like sentences <laughs> as I was like developing this essay about One Direction. That like multiple editors, all of them guys, have been like, oh, we actually wrote, a, we ran a story like this last year by so and so. And then I'll read that and I'm like, 
no, this is a very different essay about One Direction. Like, you, do <laughs> you don't get it. And then I'll, I'll tell that writer, because, like, usually I'll know them if they're if they're in the one direction ecosystem and they'll read it and they'll be like oh my god how dare they say that what i was trying to say was anything close to what you're trying to say because they're also very protective of their one direction essays uh and they're like <laughs> my editor's an idiot i can't believe them like i'm never writing them again like no no in, no. in a scenario yeah, like this so like again. in in a scenario like this would you hold on to this or would you just put it out on like medium or something well, if it's gone to nine editors at this point, I mean, it, it, it has not gone to nine editors in this form. It has gone to five editors as like an excerpt and pitch. And then it's now gone to two editors in its complete form. And at some point you give up on those things, but also it's one of those like, I care so much about this thing that I I honestly believe I'm like, well, like, and again, this is like, this takes like a certain amount of like writerly chutzpah, <laughs> like, but I'm like, well, eventually they'll want this for the New Yorker. Like, eventually, <laughs> like, I so like beyond the needs of like any of these people who have put it down that they'll be like begging, there will be a bidding war for my One Direction essay. And I like only the New Yorker print edition will have it. And like, even then I'll be like, maybe I should put it in a book. You guys, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I should give it to you. They're pretty good. They're really good. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm laughing at you, but like, I'm also like <laughs> smiling so hard because like, I, I just love the fact that you were so ambitious with your thinking here. Cause if you aren't, cause like I've, I mean, I've never written for the New Yorker and I don't know if I ever will, but like you have to have like when you do have the ideas that you like really believe in where you're like this is some of my best work when like I have sent like I like shown that to people who don't care about it and they're like who they and when they take the time to read it they're like I never understood why you cared about this boy band so much they were very indistinguishable from like in sync to me but like you really put me in like you know, where your, where your headspace is for this. And like, I think it's really beautiful or like, so my friend who I got this tattoo with, who I didn't get it with, but we like got it separately. Her, her sister who is like never fully embraced the, like my younger sister gets one direction tattoos thing said like, I read the blog post about your new tattoo. I will never judge a one direction tattoo or any fan based tattoo again for the rest of my life. And it was just like a blog post. It was like, you know, like 700 words or something where I was like, here's why I got this tattoo. Um, and that like singing those kinds of reinforcements where it's not like all of my, like, I don't think that way about every piece I've ever written by any stretch of the imagination, but when it's something that I really care about um, and that I have that like gut feeling about, I'm like, okay, like, there is a home for this. It might be in a different version. It might be like 700 or a thousand words shorter, but like, this is like, this is my one direction masterpiece. And like, this is the what, opus of one direction. Yeah. And like, this is the one that really matters to me. I don't believe that I, I don't, I really, I do love it when things like that, do go to a higher level because they frequently do is the thing that I always like tell younger writers is like, they're like, Hey, this got rejected at the hairpin. What should I do with it? And I'm like, take it to the guardian, you know, like, Oh, like they don't want this at, you know, such and such like magazine. And I'm like, well, take it to this magazine. Cause they pay better, you know, like, and I believe that. So there are very few pieces that like, people who know what they're doing. I think there's very few pieces that have no home um, in the sort of media landscape. And that shooting higher is often more successful. It ends up being more successful and it feels so much better, not because like you're gloating, but because like it means your instinct was good. It means like your instinct did matter when you're like, I know that this piece, like, so, like, the piece that got me my book deal, or got me my agent, 
was being Winona in a world of major Gwyneths. And that has been like sort of edited and reimagined as the first essay in this book. And I pitched that first to the hairpin and the toast. That was in like August of 2014. And then I did it as a reading and people laughed. And I was like, okay, I'm going to like hang on to this, even though it got rejected. And then I got hired at BuzzFeed and in November of 2014. And then I showed this to the culture editor who was like, hey, I saw you, your essays in the past and they were really great. I'd love for you to write essays for the culture section. And it ran in January of 2015. And I had, it got 200,000 views in the first day. It now has like 280 or something like that. And it was what sort of like catalyzed my agent to say like, I want to be your eight. Like usually an agent will like be talking to you until you have a proposal. And she signed me the day that that essay came out. And it was one of those moments where, where I like became a believer in like shooting higher. Sorry to interrupt this week's episode. Uh, we wanted to let you know about My Lit Box, which is a monthly book subscription box that celebrates diversity in literature by delivering a book written by an author of color to your house once a month. Uh, if you pay for the premium model, you get one or two quality book-related items that show up along with the book. Uh, it's a really cool experience. These are books that you're going to be reading anyway, so you might as well just get them delivered once a month without you even paying attention. And the best news, if you're a fan of this podcast, you can get 10% off your first box by using the code WWDW upon checkout. Find out more at mylitbox.com. Now let's get back to the show. The question I want to ask is, like, you haven't really slowed down since you started taking off, uh, you know, as soon as you started going viral. It seems like your pace has only quickened. That's nice of you to say, because I don't feel that way, only because I'm very, I mean, I'm much more cognizant about, like, you know, it was, there was a time when I was publishing two or three times a week, and now I don't have to be doing that. Um, and, like, my 2016 sort of, like, aggregation of publications is very different than my 2015 I think because like for a while I had um I had the column I had a column at the cut and I had a column at Pacific Standard in um 2015 and 2016 and um those were very focused on like very specific subsets of um you know they, one was like a social science column that was like made readable for humans um and one was the sort of like dating and romance and love and sex and modernity column and um when I stopped doing those and felt sort of directionless like there's definitely been probably as many pieces but like they've been sort of like sometimes weird essays on like Hurricane Sandy or like a weird one-off about like Instagram ads on like real life magazine um but I have, I mean, I haven't slowed down because I've been like promoting the first book and I've been like writing the second book. Um, but I do feel that constant nagging of like, are you still at the same visibility level? Like, are people still reading your stuff? Like, do people know that you're more than a Twitter personality? Because I've had in the last few months, like several tweets go viral. And like, I think that it's a huge mistake the writers make, which is to mistake like their Twitter popularity for their like prolificness or their quality as a writer. And um, I refer frequently back to the same gif of, like, a woman in, I believe it was Real Housewives of Atlanta, saying, like, these bitches think they're Beyonce because they walked in one local-ass fashion show. And, like, I consider, like, media Twitter a local-ass fashion show, where it's, like, if you're famous among, like, your own peers, like, what does that mean to, like, the people who don't give a shit about media Twitter in the middle of the country who, like, I want my book to matter to? And so I'm always very cognizant of like, how am I, how am I doing among people who don't care about this thing that I am doing reasonably well in? Um, and those are, and those are harder people to gauge the interest of because they're not, it's an argument from silence. Like, how do I know if they care? <laughs> because it's like one email comes in or like, you know, if I can like do like a weird, creepy, like analysis of like the geographic you know, disperse all of my Twitter followers, but like, I don't want to do that. And be like, all right, we really are like, we're doing okay in Wisconsin, but like Minnesota, like, where are my people? I think that like not slowing down is important because people really rest on their laurels too quickly and they spend book advances and they get really like 
you know, high on their own supply when it comes to like, oh, like I'm this popular on Twitter, I'm therefore untouchable and can like start being mean or I can start being lazy about my writing or I can stop having new ideas or I can stop selling books. And like those things don't all actually make you a professional, successful writer. Like they make you a who's who of media, but like who the fuck are you? You know, like, it's one of those things where I'm like, I don't think that I'm, I'm not enough. And I know that, like, my work has to be the thing that, like, separates, you know, that's, like, on top of me and, like, my personality. Like, the work has to be there. So I keep doing the work um, and want to do more of the work that's, like, visible in, in, in some respects. But, like, Again, like a book is one of those things where I'm like, it'll be like an explosion, hopefully a visibility in a way that like I've never known from like a piece that, you know, was on the internet and did well. Um, and I'm excited to see what that looks like because it is a very different kind of attention and it's a very different kind of writing success. Um, I have a lot more stuff coming out in print where I'm like, oh, like there's like women in the dentist office reading this article in Glamour magazine, but, like, do they really exist if they didn't tweet it? You know? It's, like, <laughs> one of those things that, like, you contend with as someone who starts in a very digitally-oriented space. And, like, I've had things that, like, I've forgotten that I wrote, and then, like, the publication will send me a copy of the magazine, and I'm like, oh, right, yeah, like, good story about Harry Potter. Hey, that was me. Yeah, yeah. and, like, I want to take pictures of it and, like, have them, you know, be shared, but, like, it never will go as far as, like, having that actual link to a media publication and it's just very odd because I'm like this magazine landed in like hundreds of thousands of households or something crazy and uh but like it it has like no footprint on the internet and that's mm. something like that's very but it's been very interesting to um to better understand print writers in one way because I'm like oh no wonder they're never on twitter because like it doesn't matter they are still writing for $2 a word. Um, and so, Is that a lot or a little in terms of per word? That's a lot. Uh, like a lot of people okay. like don't, I mean like that's like a, it's a standard print rate, but like so few people are in print these days as compared to, like it's probably the same number of people are in print because there's like, you know, fewer or the same number of magazines, but because there's so much mm. digital content, there's like, you know, a hundred magazines every month at, from the same publication because there's just so much material that it's not feasible to have that rate online for most places. So do you find yourself with what's the difference in opportunity there between like where you were writing for and where you're writing now? So the thing about I mean, with books, it's one of those things where I realize that I have books in me that I didn't know I had in me. Because I'm like, oh, like, this thing that's been bothering me is actually a book. And there's, like, more to it than, like, than I really thought. But, like, moving into print as a platform has been very, it's been very interesting in terms of, like, disciplining my word counts. Because I'm not usually someone who goes to, like, four or 5,000 words. But, like, if I want to... I have like done that and had an editor read it and be like, yeah, you definitely need this many words. Whereas like if you're writing for like a Condé Nast women's magazine, they're going to have both like a style that you need to adhere to that they're going to like edit you to. And there's going to be like a very definite word count. That's like those, those magazines are um, real estate projects as much as they're creative and editorial projects in this way that I think is really both like, it's both really frustrating, but also really like fascinating and admirable because it's like, how do you make this story work when it needs 2000 words, but you have to make it 1500. Um, like what are the sacrifices you make? So it's been very interesting as like a writer being edited in those spaces, which is like the polar opposite of like a book where I sort of had to, I was very worried about getting to my word count of 55,000 words for all the lives I want. And then realizing that I had 62, I was like, Oh, sweet. You know, so many of the essays or so much of the essays that are in this book are about the lenses that women choose to, you know, portray themselves through and, and how that affects their public perception. So I, I I was wondering, like, do you think this is a trend that's happening kind of everywhere in media or is it exclusive to females? Um, I don't I mean, this is going to be a bad answer, but like I don't read that much by men. 
So I don't know as much what's going on in contemporary male literature and like male nonfiction and male memoir. And I think that, and so, I mean, it's really hard to answer that as a, you know, like, honestly, where like I could actually spot a trend, but when it comes to there being a much more loud and, um, condescending critique of like women's memoir in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm like, oh, like these girls are writing in the first person. Are we okay with that? Like, do they realize how dangerous this is? And um, something that I think is interesting is I had a male editor who was like giving a talk, and he was giving a talk at like a college, and a woman in the audience said like, and it was about like first person essays and about like editing women. And he was like, and she said like, so, you know, when it comes to like these like really like personal um, essays, like what is the difference between like a Kat Marnell and Alana Massey? And, you know, like what's good and bad about both of those. And like the editor told me, he's like, and I was like, are you fucking kidding? Like there's like, there's absolutely nothing that's the same. And I was kind of like, yeah, you're right. But then I was also like, but like, there's nothing wrong with what, like, I like what Kat Marnell does. Like, I don't think it's what I'm doing in this book. And I don't think it's what I've done generally, but like, there's this idea that like the memoir as like the female memoir, that's like salacious, and that is like controversial and that is sort of like self-indulgent that is, that is like that but it's like but it's also really brilliantly written and like mm-hmm. she has like a way with words that is incredible that I think we're scared of but so that that is all to say like I think that women are so cognizant and like so so knowing that that was my reaction that at first I was like yeah I'm so different I'm so special when it's not an insult to be categorized in that way. Um, that I was, but the, the, like wanting to be different is a way of wanting to be less female. I think in these, in these like sort of like memoir versions and like, you know, all these like new memoirs are coming out that are like through the lens of this and like through the experience of this or that are like micro memoirs of like a very mm-hmm. specific section of their lives or that are like seen through the lens of like nine eleven or through the lens of like, this particular music underground scene. Um, and that we're maybe, and I think those are great like uses of the genre, but I wonder to what extent they are a reaction to the message that like your wild, well-told story is just not enough. Because I think that people have been really like punishing toward women who are like, my wild, well-told story is enough. And that that, informs the way we write like maybe for maybe it's pushing us creatively but maybe it's like depriving us of really good straightforward memoirs that are really well told and I don't know what the answer is but I know that like that gut reaction I had was like not the reaction that I want to have as a woman responding to straight memoir in that way Mm -hmm. interesting there's enough room for both right yeah and then some (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and that there's and that there's not like, you know, doing like one through a lens, like isn't necessarily superior because I think that is you know sort of like creatively impoverished sort of like concept to be like only the ones done in this style are good. When I'm like, but if you haven't read this the the, the contents of it, mm-hmm. you can't really make that assessment because like I've read very very boring stylized memoirs and I've read really great straightforward memoirs and so I just want to I want to create space for them both as like valid exciting things that are happening yeah it comes down to mostly the writing for you the grasp of language and how you work with it yeah like because sometimes like do you ever like go through get through a memoir and you're like either like wow that was really boring for how much cool stuff happened or like oh my god like I totally relate to that person but like nothing happened in that story like nothing like why do I love this book when like the most exciting thing was a not even love story that like ended ambiguously and you're like am I boring too (laughs) like the closest parallel for me is trying to read more history based things and like the difference between Michael Lewis and Howard Zinn Uh 
and you know some of the people who are writing historical fiction because I haven't gotten that far into the memoir field yet. Yeah. But the difference, you know, someone writing about stock trading and automatic you know, stock purchasing machines, very, very interesting, very clear prose. And then someone writing like historical fact that is the craziest war that's ever happened, but I can't get through more than three pages of it because it's, because it's as dry as a bone. Yeah. It's night and day. Yeah. Which is why I like like really weird history books that are like really voicey. I don't know if you've read like like some of the recent ones, but like I'm like, oh, like this is like taking me on a little journey. It's like very Miss Frizzle. Like, but wait, all, what do you got? Because I'm always looking for. Also, like I, I don't know if you've read um, Jennifer Wright's book about plagues. It's coming out the same day. I have as not. Mine. And it's like hmm. a history book about plagues and like the various plagues that have plagued humanity and like who fought them and who like lost against them. But it's like, and Jennifer Wright is like a writer. I've only met her once. But like, she's a very like bubbly, fun girl who like has like funny little quips. And like, she like does those in like, you know, the smallpox epidemic in, you know, this and that was like a big fucking horrible thing. And like, you know, like I, I may, I'm like forgetting all of the, like the funny jokes that she makes about like, horrible horrible diseases but like she keeps you like in it with that mm -hmm. and like in a way that i think that is important in history books that most people like most like his, just proper historians don't do which is like they like recuse themselves from moral judgment and she's like and you know why this was stupid because there weren't any fucking vaccines and you know what's great we have them now and like use vaccines like don't <laughs> let this happen again idiot <laughs> You know, and I'm just like, yeah, exactly. Like, because if you're kind of like dense, like your takeaway might not be that. But she's like, and you know what? Modern medicine is fucking great because we don't have wild ass dancing disease and we don't have, you know, <laughs> smallpox and we don't have like syphilis that kills us very insidiously. Like we take care of it and it's awesome. But and the, down, the downside of all of this is that the anti-vaxxers are the same people that probably won't read that book. Oh, I'm sure. They're like, ah, eh, this isn't. Yeah. I mean, I don't, who, who, do those people read? What is this, fiction? Like, yeah. I don't know. Like, anti-vaxxers are, like, reading so much as they're like, I absorbed the contents of yeah. the magazine I looked at on the counter today, but mostly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it. I don't need to read it. I'll just touch it. All right. So, Alana, I think this is as good a time as any to transition okay. uh, to the, the reason we purportedly bring writers on which is to tell the story or talk about the story at least that you've struggled to tell in the past right. so take it away i think that one of the more interesting things about i mean alcoholics anonymous is like your classic fight club in the sense that like the first rule of alcoholics anonymous is you don't talk about alcoholics anonymous which is it built into its title and so i wasn't a writer when i joined the fellowship as it's called um and i wasn't even thinking of being a writer and i didn't know that that's where my trajectory was headed but i think that because the last six months of my sort of tenure of like attending meetings and like being part of the fellowship of aa and like starting to write and realize how much of my life I was withholding in a way that wasn't it wasn't just a matter of like leaving out details that were unimportant to the narrative it was like it felt um actively dishonest because um jokes I would make about drinking were untrue or you know withholding like I kind of don't saying like I kind of not really into drinking when really it was like I don't drink alcohol um made me feel very hyper aware that I was in AA and then leaving AA and having this very um sort of tumultuous social experience of leaving AA in which I lost a ton of friends who I had met through AA meetings and who I had told like oh I drank and I'm not happy about it and like let me tell you because like this is what we do in AA and then um, realizing, like, oh, like, it's actually okay, and, like, I'm going to not come to AA anymore. And then those people never wanting to speak to me again are still, like, only talking to me. Like, still to this day, it's been now three and a half years since that happened. And I was only in the program for three years. Um, 
where I'll have people who are like, well, if you ever want to catch a meeting, I'd love to see you. And I'm like, don't you realize that like I became a successful writer and like have like the most successful relationship with my wife and like that, like it was a different thing or that like being an AA wasn't going to be the thing. It was going to be the thing that saved my life for those years. And I completely credit it with that, but that it's not going to be the thing that saves my life forever. And that it gave me like the clarity and peace of mind to do those things. But because I was always so wanting to be empirical about everything, I started looking into AA's founding and I started looking into like AA's efficacy and I start and I kept finding therapists who wouldn't talk to me because they knew I had been in AA before and that I wasn't in AA now. And it meant that that I was an active alcoholic by default. And I was like, maybe it means something else. Maybe it means that like I had a behavior that was like, you know, and it's one of those things that like, even now I can't talk about it without getting back into like, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. Like, and it's this about, and it's like straight from AA literature, what people are thinking an alcoholic means and what they're thinking alcoholic behavior means. And that that has become these sort of like founding principles of AA and the things that happened in the 12 steps and the things that happened in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that were sort of like the groundwork sort of like pre what we understand today as, rigorous research that was all anecdotal um and was all like very you know efficacious for the people who wrote it but like it's an argument from silence again like for whom it didn't work because it's like the narrative of that book is so it's so it's written so tightly that it's always your fault if it fails where it's like the gymnastics they had to go through to make it possible that you are always the author of your own failure within that program, that it's never the fault of the program or um, it's never a flaw in the, the logic of like the disease model that they put forth. And so I was very interesting, interested in like finding out like who wrote it, who was like behind it and like finding out that there's like, a bunch of like sort of tangential histories around like LSD involvement and like people being into psychedelics who are part of the founding of AA and like how like can you do LSD while you're sober? Yes to some people, absolutely not to other people. Like you certainly can't smoke pot and like what is definitely a more um, consciousness altering substance whether you consider it more harmful or not is like a, a difference of opinion because some people think like pot is harmful some people think psychedelics are harmful I don't think that either is especially harmful when you consider that like alcohol is actual poison um that I'm totally fine about consuming um like in in my current understanding of like how my body and mind react to it but like there's so much that I have wanted to say about AA and both my experience of it and my experience of it as like a reader of its materials and as a practitioner of its like main principles and as like a member of its like fellowship. And then as like the exile and prodigal of that. But then also this someone who can talk out of both sides of their mouth and say like, this is the thing that I have seen people's lives saved by and that I never in a million years want them to ever leave that because like the, the, the fallout is too great. What they suffer from leaving it is too great. And that, that I know there's people who thought the same thing about me, that like I was only capable of hope if I had the program. Um, and so I understand why those people don't want to talk to me because they think that like I'm on like a journey to destruction and it's only a matter of time. And like those are such, those are such uh, complicated and nuanced understandings of the same set of materials and they're also because I would never assume to know like you know like I have a hunch that there's people who feel that way about me but I wouldn't deign to be like hey I know that it's like we're not supposed to talk because like one of the steps is like we don't talk about this at the level of radio tv or film and I'm like look at me I'm not in the fellowship anymore so I'm doing it anyway <laughs> uh but like there's people who don't talk about it even if it was anonymously it's like we don't 
uh, endorse or negate it at the level of television, radio, or film. And um, there's people who have gone against that rule and, like, have said things about it, and then they've been, you know, judged differently by different members of it. But because I don't want to put words into anyone's mouth, because I have had... Because, like, me doing so and, like, me assuming, like, oh, like, I might be a threat to their sobriety if they realize, like, someone can get out of the fellowship and, like, do it differently, then I'm a threat to their sobriety. I'm, like, that's, like, a very presumptuous thing to think in the same way it's presumptuous for them to think, like, she's she's just going to die sometime later. <laughs> and, like, mm-hmm. that neither of those are um, are ethically responsible to your friends and they're not uh responsible storytelling either um but because i because i've also just seen aa portrayed so poorly on television too where like there's always someone leading it as if it's like something that you like go to therapy and there's like the leader of the aa group who is like the professional as opposed to it being like peer-led always and being much more informal than they ever have it on tv and in movies and i hate that people have that portrayal of it because it's always portrayed as really boring it's always portrayed as really condescending and like i do want there to be something out there that shows that it is like a place that is like joyful and full of hope and like full of like funny brilliant successful people but that i also want to show that there's an element of it that many people experience that is kind of grim and that is kind of uh, hypocritical and that is sort of like you have to play a mind game with yourself to stay in a lot of circumstances because what's coming out of people's mouths and what's coming out of like their actions is so wildly different and it's all wildly divergent from like what's in the book and what's in like the materials and what's like in what you're hearing in the world um which, like, I hate to, like, end on the idea of, like, you know, it's, like, it's just too complicated. But, like, there's just, there's too much material and too, I mean, in too little confidence on my end right now, I think, to, to appropriately and delicately deal with, like, the, the dimensions of it. Because it really has, it saved more lives than any church I've ever been to. And, like, I am a very strong believer that, like, church saves lives. And seeing, like, the the numbers of people that it's, like, kept from harm makes me want to do no harm to it. Um, but I still kind of want to, like, jab it. And be like, hey, guys, what about this part? Hey, hey, remember when you were mean, when you were mean to me? Like, and I, and I don't want, like, my personal... Uh, vindictiveness around certain elements that I experienced to color an overall portrait of what happens there, both psychologically and historically. And I'm not far enough away from it, I don't think, to do that. That's fascinating. Like, I, I have so, <laughs> so many comments right now that, like, for the same reasons you just addressed, uh, you know, not wanting to tell that story, I don't want to ask. Um, it's, it's tough. Yeah, and I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. Cool. That's what you want want from a story. It's for people to be thinking about it. So I will probably be too, because I'm like, how many people did I accidentally, like, opaquely (laughs) refer to, even without, like, (laughs) any references? It's like, who is that? Um, And it's, it's, uh, I think responsible storytelling has the consent of the people in it, which I think is also very divergent from what a lot of writers believe. You know, there's very much like a school thought that's like, well, people should have been nicer to you if they didn't want to interpret your stories. And I'm kind of like, yeah, but like, aren't we all a little selfish and thinking everyone's a little meaner to us than they really were? And isn't everyone like a little like more broken than we give them credit for besides ourselves? And I don't want to hurt anyone with things I write. And I'm very afraid of that hurting someone, both advert- like directly and inadvertently. So I, I'm, I'm steering clear of it for now. Well, on that note, if anybody listening to this has any comments on that story, which, you know, I suspect that they will, where can people find you online? Oh, people can find me all <laughs> over the internet. I am findable at, on at twitter.com at, at the uh, handle Alana Massey, A-L-A-N-A-M-A-S-S-E-Y. My website is alanakm.com, where I regularly 
update my blog, um, which is like a weird thing that people don't do, but I kind of find therapeutic and fun. <laughs> and they can always buy my book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, IndieBound, all those places that sell books. What's it called? All the Lives I Want. Okay, perfect. Essays about yeah. my best friends who happen to be famous strangers. I actually, that's the first time I noticed the, I have the book sitting in front of me, and that's the first time that I noticed the subtitle. Um, oh, it's a, I like it. I'm happy I like it, too. It's, it's an amazing <laughs> yeah. subtitle. Yeah. Um, well, you know, theoretically, when we release this episode, uh, that will be yesterday that it came out. So, wow. congratulations. Yay. Um, <laughs> thank uh, you. Thank you. This Thank was a you. ton of fun, and you know, I uh, like. I'm really glad that we got to speak because I've been a big fan of your work for a while. Wow! Oh, thank you so much. That's very kind of you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Writers Who Don't Write. You can find us online at uh, www.podcast.com. You can get us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com/www-podcast. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we have a great newsletter that you can find if you visit the website. Uh, we really appreciate any support, you know, whether that's a tweet, a review on iTunes, it really helps out. We don't put any money into marketing the show. Uh, it is just us hanging out, talking to cool people, and if you appreciate it, you know, let us know. We want to thank Alana Massey. Uh, you can find her new book just out at alanakm.com. Or you can find her on Twitter at Alana Massey. Or you can get her book literally wherever books are sold. Valentine's Day is coming up. Might be a good gift for your girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever. We want to thank My Lip Box for sponsoring the show. You can find My Lip Box at mylipbox.com. And you can get 10% off your first box by using code WWDW upon checkout. If you want to find out more about My Lip Box, you can check out our interview with Sonora Williams, the CEO, which we posted last week on all of our accounts. Uh, we want to thank bensound.com for providing the music that you heard in the middle of the show over the my lip box ad and we want to thank ryan dan of holland patent public library who kills it in the intro and outro of every episode of this show that we have ever produced so we'll see you in two weeks with comedian mike brown who is one of the funniest guys i have ever met and also, according to him, he's going to blow the podcast up. So this will probably be the last week you're listening to that we're not famous. All right. I'm, I'm getting better shoes. Yeah, I've, I've signed some contracts. It's, it's all happening. So we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>